0: As a young kid, I grew up and Saturdays became synonymous with USC football because um, my my grandfather graduated from USC, my grandmother, my dad, my brother-in-laws, I did. Everybody in our family somehow made the mistake of going to USC. And my folks are these incredible football fans. And so they get these season tickets. As it turned out, my brother-in-law, Tom Bollinger, actually played for USC for four years when they were on the national championship run there through those years. They went to the Rose Bowl two or three years in a row and all that stuff. So I was a part of some of the best years of SC's football, at least as a spectator, right? But I'll never forget the first time my dad took me to the Coliseum. I was probably eight years old. Have you ever been there? How many of you have not been to the Coliseum? Have not. You come in through, we went up the stairs because we didn't have good seats, which means we were up in the high section, you know? In fact, one year we had seats on the very top row of the Coliseum. We were so high, the game was just a rumor. You know, you could hardly see it. Anyway, we walked down the tunnel and I began to look and way across, you know, a little eight-year-old kid, there's this, there's stands and it's a big oval thing and I looked way across. I could not believe it. There are thousands, a hundred thousand people used to be able to sit in there. And then you get to the edge and you begin to look down and it's just this big cavern comes down. There's this field and these little ants are running around trying to play football. Well, later, my wife and I, Heidi, we got married and we were living in marriage student housing on the campus. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is you get married, there's no money. So we couldn't go to the game because we couldn't get tickets. And my folks had called us that morning and they said, oh, yeah, we'll be there and we're going to have a great time. Sorry, you can't make it. And we kind of hung up the phone. And then a buddy of mine uh, had some extra tickets. And, of course, now they're already on their way. They live in Solving, right? So they're going to drive all the way down. They're in the car on their way down. And my buddy gives me these tickets and we're at the game. And I know where they sit because they sit in the same place every year, right? That's where they, how they do that stuff. So um, at halftime, I, I got my field binoculars, you know, and I'm kind of trying to find them now. And, you know, there's just people are everywhere. And I'm just looking around. I'm not even much interested in the game at this point. Halftime comes. My wife says, I'm going to go over and say hi. Well, I'm in this really good article. And so I say goodbye. So she walks all the way around the Coliseum on that mid-level. And she finds them. And she has a wonderful conversation. Comes all the way back because the game's going to start again. And, and so my parents are all surprised. You know, they didn't know we were at the game and everything. And So they kick off and they start to play. And I'm still interested in trying to find my parents. And I'm, they're like right over there, you know. And I'm trying to find them. I'm kind of scanning. I'm going down the aisles. And all of a sudden, I see standing up in the middle of the aisle, my father going like this. And I go, Yeah. Heidi, Heidi, stand up and go like that. And she goes like, what? I go, you know. So she stands up and she's going like this. And then all of a sudden the guy behind us, you know, he says down in front, right? He's trying to watch the game. And so she's got to sit down. And now my mom's got the binoculars and I've got the binoculars and my dad's going like this. And when Heidi goes like this, you can see my mom. She grabs my dad. They found us, you know, they found us. And so he's got to sit down and she's got to sit down. now it's just me and my mom. And we're kind of looking at each other. And I go like this. I go... And she goes, right? and we begin to do all these movements. Poor people think we're on drugs, and most people are in the Coliseum at this time. And uh, so I take my hand and just go like that, and she goes like that. And pretty soon, we're down to this, you know. Isn't that amazing? Communication. We are just spanning the gap. I don't even know what happened in the game. I can't remember who played, but I can remember that. That whole incident of being able to communicate with somebody in a kind of an unusual way. I studied business, marketing major at USC, and we began to study all these big promotional schemes of these corporations as they would try to communicate um their, their logo or their product. You know what I mean? They spend millions of dollars. Um, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Coke ads life. Dotson, you know that one, we are driven? Sorry. And uh <coughs> Well, Pepsi hit on this incredibly successful one some years ago. It was Come Alive with Pepsi. Absolutely increased their sales, no end. They were having a phenomenal time. And it was about this time that all these different soft drinks were trying to go international. and They are trying to get their product in China and their product over here and over in Europe. So Pepsi says, well, we got the number one slogan. And they try to, again, communicate cross-culturally here. And so they take their, their slogan, Come Alive with Pepsi, And they convert it to Taiwanese. And they put it in Mandarin characters. Only one problem. That they did not know until it was too late. After they blitzed Taiwan with this new promotional to get their product established on the market. It came out this way. Instead of come alive with Pepsi, which was what was so successful in America. It came out, drink Pepsi. It brings your ancestors back from the dead. (laughs) Problems. At the same time, they had a big promotion going in Europe. And that went red, same slogan, come alive with Pepsi. But it came out, drink Pepsi and come alive out of the grave. Right? Tremendous. Somewhere, sometimes, the communication flow has a tendency to break down. And we do not always communicate what we feel or what we think. It happens when humans communicate with humans. And may I suggest that it happens when God communicates with us. Not because God is sending less than a perfect message in a perfect medium. The problem is he sends it to imperfect people. And as a result, we do not get the full significance of his message. When infinite God says to finite man, I love you, you can bet something is getting lost in translation. Why is it that when I hear the verse John 3:16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, I almost want to stop quoting it because I know it so well that it has lost its meaning to me. The little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You can't find a greater truth in Scripture. Yet the verse and the song somehow have paled to insignificance. They don't hit me like they ought to hit me. They don't communicate What it ought to say. The fact that God loves me. The problem is familiarity breeds indifference. I can hear it so much, I become indifferent to it. And I want to challenge everyone this morning, myself included. And I prayed in my heart, and I'm going to ask you to pray in a minute. I'm asking you to challenge yourself to get a bigger picture of God's love for you. Strip off the familiarity and the indifference that it breeds and try to hear anew and afresh this morning the fact that God loves you. Let what you already know of His love for you have a greater impact on your life, how you view yourself, what you consider your purpose to be here on earth, and more specifically, what you'll do with the next 48 hours of your life. I'm asking you to open your mind and your heart to be impacted in a new way with the truth that God loves you and to let you have it make a difference in your life. So maybe it would be just appropriate for all of us to bow our heads for a second. And maybe in your own heart, thank Him for His love, but admit to Him that it's not as meaningful to you as you know it should be. And then ask Him to cause it to be different. Father, as we meet in chapel this morning, we would shun the thought that we could come and go, hear your word, and not be different because of it. And we touch even this morning on a subject that is so familiar to us, one that was probably the first thing we ever learned, that is that Jesus loves us. And we know we're not getting the full message, and we need to, Father. Help us at this time to receive that. May your spirit minister mightily in our midst, and we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. You know the definition of true happiness? Sitting next to a person who knows where Hosea is. It goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. The first of the minor prophets. Hosea, just turn to chapter 1 and I'll kind of give some introductory material and we'll be on our way. Hosea is called by God. He's a prophet. He's called to prophesy to the people of Israel during their last hours. One person has said, what we see in the prophecy of Hosea are the last few swirls as the kingdom of Israel goes down the drain. These are the last hours of the nation of Israel. Jeroboam II was on the throne at the beginning of this time. And he was rather successful in his military campaigns. He was able to, able to regain much of the land that had been lost under the reigns of previous kings. And with his military success came prosperity, influence, wealth, and luxury. So you picture Israel under Jeroboam II, successful in his war campaigns. The land is being reestablished. There's wealth, there's money, there's influence, there's luxurious living. And what so often comes with that? Spiritual bankruptcy. A spirit of independence from God. No need for the things of God. I have it all right here. I'm comfortable. I'm cozy. I'm self-sufficient. And the country at this time is committing spiritual adultery. What do I mean by spiritual adultery? As we have adultery in the physical form where a man is married to a woman and his commitment is to complete fidelity, to love and to care and to cherish only this one woman, He runs off and does that to another woman. Physical adultery. Spiritual adultery is in our relationship with God. We are committed and betrothed and in love with only one God. And we commit spiritual adultery by worshiping another God. And that's exactly what is going on. The country is full of it. They're worshiping other gods. They're having child sacrifices. They're burning people. They're worshiping Baal. They're involved in fertility cults where they act out intercourse on earth that they might incite the fertility gods of the universe, that they might have reproduction and much produce. Tremendous idolatry. But God calls Hosea to communicate a message. And that is the message of God's unconditional love for this people who have committed spiritual adultery. God calls Hosea to go and say, it's all right, Israel, repent from your sin, turn from your wickedness. Why? Because I love you and I want to restore our relationship with you. The war machine of Assyria is being prepared to soon come bring swift and destructive judgment upon the nation of Israel. But first God sends Hosea with the message, I love you, return to me and all will be at peace. But thinking again of the communication breakdown that so often happens, God calls Hosea not to go and speak the words only. But he chooses to communicate this incredible message out of the tragedy of Hosea's own life. Through his own personal tragedy. We find in the book of Hosea a story of one-sided love and faithfulness. First between a prophet and his wife, namely Hosea and his wife Gomer. What a name. And then between Jehovah and his faithless people, just as Gomer is married to Hosea, Israel is betrothed to God. In both cases, the bride plays the harlot and runs after other lovers. But unconditional love keeps seeking, even when it is spurned. So the life of Hosea in itself becomes the message. God says, do not only speak my love, but exemplify, illustrate, and live my love among the people I love. Let's pick up the narrative with Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Bere, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, he said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Now there's a good possibility that this is a proleptic verse. This verse has a proleptic flavor to it. In other words, it appears here that God initially said, Hosea, go marry a woman named Gomer, and she is a harlot. That may have been the way it happened, but there's a good chance it didn't happen that way at all. Because the thing may be proleptic. In other words, he may have said, go marry a woman. And Hosea, being a young prophet of God, a man of character, may have found this lady he called Gomer. Knew nothing of her past, knew nothing of her future. Found her to be what he wanted in a wife and married her. But either way, maybe she was a harlot. And by God calling him to marry her, I'm sure his assumption would have been, well, she'll give that up. That's a thing of the past. I can forgive a person for that. And so, in either case, their marriage probably had a very good start. As marriages often do. They must have set up home somewhere, got a daily routine, gazed into one another's eyes, and had dinner over candlelight. My, how long those days seem. Gone. Never mind. All right. It's my anniversary, by the way, today. Thank you. That's what Heidi said when I walked out the door today. Oh, do you have to go? All right. So the marriage probably had a good start, but... Soon enough, Hosea would have found out. Possibly Gomer began to come in late. Ah, Gomer may have come in late. Gomer may have showed some irregular patterns. And I'm sure that the man would have discovered that indeed she was practicing harlotry. She was unfaithful to him. And as any man of God would do, he no doubt took his domestic burdens to the Lord in prayer. God, my wife is unfaithful. Do something. Help me. Help us. His heart no doubt broken. And I'm sure he found what he thought to be the answer to his prayer. And we find it in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, I'm sorry, verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name the son Jezreel. And I'm sure what Hosea was thinking at that point is this little boy is going to take one little hand and tuck it around Gomer's heart. And he's going to take another little hand, he's going to put it around my heart. He's going to pull us together. And we're going to be done with this harlotry. Well, time went on. In verse 6, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter this time. And they named her Lo-Ru-Ama. And finally, in verse 9, we find that Hosea's prayer wasn't answered at all. Because they had another little boy. And verse 9 says, Name him Lo-Ami. For you are not my people. And I am not your God. Now recall... Hosea is not speaking a message as much as he is living a message. The word uh, lo-ami literally means not of my kin. Not of my kin. What is Hosea saying? These children that were born into his home were not his children at all. These children were the product of her adulterous relationships. And so what this poor prophet finds is that he is married to a woman... Who is continually unfaithful. A woman who goes out and in her unfaithfulness conceives children. And now he is the father. In a weird way. Of children who are not his own. Well the story gets worse. Look at chapter 2 verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Well, I think we can gather from this is that she began not only to commit adultery, she just went ahead and moved out. Possibly someday the prophet might have come home and found a little note there on the nursery door. I'm gone. Don't find me. I'm not coming back. Gomer. So she just moves out. Now, to get the full significance, gals, would you play the part of Gomer in your own mind and think of the pain it would wreak in your life? And guys, will you let it be your wife just for a moment? You're a strong, young man called to do the work of God. The woman you married deserts you after having given you children that were not your own. Isn't it funny? Sin. We enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, don't we? Sin is pleasurable for a season. There is some excitement in sin. But as is so often the case with this kind of a situation, as I'm sure she moved out, the country was in a time of great prosperity, luxury was there, men were all over willing to give her fine things, as it says here in the verse. But it appears that she began to fall into the hands of some men who could not properly care for her. A woman in her virtue is a very attractive thing. A woman who has given her virtue away becomes less and less attractive. It appears here from in 2.8 that she'd fallen into the hands of a man who could not provide for her the things that Hosea wanted her to have. A man of no means. And we picture the scene, Hosea still loving his wife, still unconditionally committed to his wife, still living the love that God has for you and I. And he begins to be concerned that the man that she's with cannot provide even the basics, cannot provide the kind of living that he wanted for her. And so he seeks the man out somewhere and says, are you the one living with Gomer? He might have said, yeah, what if I am? Well, I'm her husband. The man certainly would have clenched his fist and be ready for the fight. And he says, no, 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 I'm not here to fight you. Here, I have gold. I have silver. I have barley. Will you take it? Will you give it to my wife? I care for her. Read verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Can't you see it? The lustful wretch, he takes the stuff from Hosea and he brings it back to wherever they were shacking up and he lavishes on her all these fine things. Does he bother to tell her where it's from? Of course not. And he receives the affection and the attention and the love in response, if you call it love. And you say to yourself, wait a minute, something's wrong here, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't add up. She's a jerk. She doesn't deserve that. He had to let her just reap the consequences of her own sin. He had to just let her go. He had to make her pay. What does he mean? What is he doing? Love, that's weird. And I'd agree with you. That doesn't make sense. But love has a logic that doesn't always make sense, right? Love has a reason that reason can't reason. Love has an understanding that understanding can't understand. So he continues to provide for her. But out of his deep compassion, I think with time, he realizes that this isn't doing any good. He's giving her this stuff and it's not changing anything. She's not finding her way to repentance. And so he possibly begins to treat her the same way God had treated the nation of Israel. In other words, he turned her over finally to reap what she'd sown. Look at verse 15. Then I will give her the vineyards from there and the valley of Acor. As a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Now you've got some, uh, some color here with an actual historical event. The valley of Achor was where they stoned Achan. Remember what happened to Achan? They'd just come out of the Exodus. They'd gone through the wandering. Joshua was in charge. They crossed the River Jordan. They go around Jericho. The walls fall down and God says one thing. I'll give you the victory, but take none of the spoil. What does Achan do? He takes from the spoil. The only man in the camp... He secretly does it. And we find ourselves in a battle against Ai, the very next battle against the city of Ai. And we lose men. We're defeated. And Joshua stops and beseeches the Lord and says, what is the problem here? And it becomes evident that Achan has taken spoil from Jericho. And what do they do? They take Achan. They take his family. They take his possessions to the valley of Achor and they stone him to death. He and his family. And then they burn it all. What do we mean then? I will give her the vineyards from there and the valley of Acor as a door of hope. It was after that that they went back to Ai and had complete victory. They purged the people of their sin and then God blessed. And so Hosea does that. He begins to withdraw his supply. He begins to hold back what was he was giving her. And he fully lets her in a purging process finally reap the consequences of her sin. And we find then the final concluding act of this drama of redemption in chapter 3. Don't read it yet. It's coming. Picture with me what might happen when the supplies stopped. Hosea stopped delivering the goods. And now you got a guy who can't provide. He doesn't have enough money. And maybe he loses his interest in this thing called Gomer. And so it's clear he decides to sell her as a slave. Now, slavery was an established institution at the time. It was something that you could do freely. And you'd picture a slave market. It would be the place where kind of some of the scavy folk might go. Certainly not a place for the prophet of God. But Hosea apparently got wind that Doma was going to be sold there, and so the prophet of God went there. And you can almost hear the muffle that would go across the crowd. Hosea, the prophet, he's right over there. He's here. And the women would be taken up and taken down and they'd be bitted upon. And finally, Gomer would probably have stood up on a platform somewhere very visible for all to see. And the men of the city would be, you know, looking and jeering and pushing and shoving, trying to examine the merchandise. And to be sure that the merchandise could be clearly seen, they typically stripped the woman of her clothing. And she'd stand there stark naked on a platform. And there you'd find Hosea. And it was no secret to the people that that she had borne him sons of harlotry, that she had finally just moved out and gone for the gusto, and that she'd fallen from one man to the next until she finally found herself in the hands of a man who'd rather sell her and take the profit than keep her. She's used, she's abused, she's stripped, she's naked. And the pure, righteous prophet of God stands in the midst and the bidding starts. And they begin to bid for this woman like she was a cattle or a cow. And the bidding goes on and on and on until finally Hosea says, I'll pay 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Half again, possibly twice as much as you pay for the best slave. Look at it here. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, go again, and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Picture it. The prophet does it. The gavel falls. Sold. He steps forward. And what does he grab onto? Anything of value? Anything of intrinsic worth? Anything deserving the price, the shame that it bore him? You can almost hear somebody say, well, that's a high price to pay for vengeance. You can imagine one of the guys in the crowd. He's clueless what's going on. He doesn't know anything about unconditional love. He thinks he's buying her so he can torture her the rest of her life. Pay your back. That's a high price for vengeance. But look what the response is. Verses 3 and 4. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you. He reestablishes his commitment of faithfulness to her. He completely forgives her. He says it will be now like it always should have been. For the sons of Israel, verse 4, will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Again, you've got to be startled. You've got to say, no, it doesn't make sense. She was worthless. She was defiled. She was worn out. She was of no value. She was of no consequence. She didn't deserve that. You know what amazes me so much about all this? is that you and I have played the part of Gomer. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you look at Gomer. Did you know that? Romans 5 says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 says, But God demonstrated His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners... While we were yet gomers, standing in the marketplace of sin, stripped of our clothing, of absolutely no value or consequence to God, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies, verse 10 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Helpless, ungodly, sinner enemy. Those are the four adjectives that describe you and they describe me as Jesus hung on the cross. Don't ever think of yourself any other way. That is how we were when He died for us on the cross. And we say, how can that be? Why? God's love for us is not based upon what we are but rather it's based upon who He is. Isn't that refreshing? it have to be that way. God loves us not because of what we do, but in spite of what we do. Something else amazes me about all this. It's that Hosea paid silver and barley. God, the blood of His own son. Hosea bought Gomer with barley with gold god bought you from the marketplace of sin with the blood of Jesus Christ let me read to you first peter knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ dr c truman davis has written an article. He's a medical doctor. And he's written an article on the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a medical description of what happens when a person is crucified. And I'm going to read it today. And as I do, will you remember that the person that's being crucified at that point is Jesus Christ, God Himself? Will you hold into account that you, at the time of His death, were an ungodly, helpless sinner and at enmity with Him? Will you possibly, to really bring it home, if you have a little brother or a little sister, if you don't have one of those, would you put your mom or your dad through this experience for me mentally? So often Jesus is, is hard to get a hold of. We've never seen Him. I don't want to get mystical But in order for you to feel the agony, put yourself through the experience or put a loved one through the experience, will you? And in that, find a greater appreciation for the love of Jesus Christ. Remember John 15.13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The physical trauma of Christ begins in Gethsemane with one of the initial aspects of his suffering, the bloody sweat. It is interesting to note that the the physician of the group, St. Luke, is the only one to mention this. He says, quote, And being in agony, he prayed the longer, and his sweat became as drops of blood, trickling down upon the ground. Unquote. Though very rare, the phenomenon of bloody sweat is well documented. Under great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. This process alone could have produced marked weakness and shock. After the arrest, in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas the high priest. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they each passed by and spat on his face and struck him in the face. Spat and struck him in the face. In the early morning, Jesus, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, is taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia. It was there, in response to the cries of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned. Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparations for the scourging are carried out. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing, and his hands are tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with a flagrum in his hand. Now, this is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather Thongs, between five and eight at the end of which are two small balls of lead and glass and metal attached near the end of each one of these thongs of leather the heavy whip is brought down with full force against Jesus' shoulders, back and legs at first the heavy thongs cut through the skin only Then, as the blows continues, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, And the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn skin, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped and the prisoner is allowed to slump to the stone pavement, which is already wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be the king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns is pressed into his scalp. After there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vesicular areas of the body, after mocking him and striking him across the face... The soldiers take a, the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport, and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, causes excruciating pain, almost as though he were again being whipped. And the wounds again begin to bleed. The heavy beam of the cross is then tied across his shoulders, what shoulders he has, and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail begins its slow journey. The weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by the copious blood loss, is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the, so- of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist, right in here through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexation and movement. The beam is then lifted in place, and at the top of it, the sign reading Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, And with both feet extended, toes down, the nail is driven driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places full weight on the nail-torn feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermediate partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber of the cross. Then another agony begins as deep crushing pain in his chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, Jesus miraculously gives up his own life. And then apparently, just to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance through the fifth interspace between the ribs, upward through the inner chamber and into the heart. And immediately there came out blood and water. What do we say to such love? What do we say to such undeserved love? Don't think for a minute that Jesus died for the world at that moment. He knew you. He knew your face. He knew your sin. He knew your problems. He knew what irritated you about him, about you. He knew everything about you. And being God, he was able to die specifically for you at that moment. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we would just stop and have to reflect. Father, we know in advance that there is nothing of any value, nothing of any consequence, nothing of any merit in ourselves. And yet, You've chosen to love us in such a love. Jesus, We know You hear us. We know You're in our midst. We know that while Your physical body is at the right hand of the throne of God, it still bears the marks of Your crucifixion. Our dear Jesus, we thank You. We personally at this time speak to You directly. And we thank You for the agony and the misery of the cross. And we know, Father, We know, dear Lord, that the whole thing we can't begin to comprehend was that as Jesus, He bore our sins. We've only considered the physical elements of the crucifixion. Because to consider the spiritual reality that perfect God bore the sins of all humanity is more than we can bear. Our only response can be a love that is unfailing, that is true that is real god created us a love for you that is in some way shadowed or does shadow the love you have for us i will thank you in jesus name amen